0: Jeez, I've just seen a uh, news flash Andrew Tate released from Romanian jail <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> That is very apt.
1: <laughs> I mean, Angela, I'll keep your hair on yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That guy. Honestly, I think he, he did he get locked up last time. He literally got locked up last two recordings ago. Yeah. Yeah. He must they must know whenever we're
3: recording to kind of put a little news flash in yeah. to see if they can boil my blood. Yeah. <laughs>
2: I thought yeah. something bad was in the universe. <laughs> <laughs> yo 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 yo. Black in a box. Here we are. How
1: are you guys? Healthy. Always healthy. Very, very healthy. Feeling good. Feeling spring's almost here. It's almost sprung, right? My hay fever's really, really kicking me this week, so that means that something's going on. This is it. <laughs> well, I'm I'm
2: super excited to announce today's guest. Esteemed guest. Esteemed guest. Highly esteemed guest. Um if you can't see it, you can't be it. Now, this podcast, for all the real ones, the day ones, will know it was started to increase the sort of representation of voices and topics um, in the black community that, we, we, that was spoken about in the media, in podcasts, just in, in different circles. And I like to say our guest today has been plowing those furrows from day. From day, from absolutely. Day, yeah. Adi Adepitan.
1: We're going MBE. to put all kinds of cheers and all M- kinds of stuff in post-production. Though, MBE. We'll get the sirens.
0: <laughs> Miles, I, like I like it. I like it. I like the sirens, the braps. <laughs> Come on. Come on.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, mate. Bit, bit of a hero of mine, bit of a hero of ours. Lovely to have you on. Lovely to have you on are you well
0: it's an absolute it's an absolute pleasure absolute pleasure man always good to see you know people black pe- people from the community doing incredible stuff like this you know getting the message out there you know this is this is this is why i did this is why i got into the industry in the first place man to see to see people like you shining you know and it makes me happy when you shine i shine more man i feel happy
1: Bro, I I'm appreciate appreciate
0: that. <laughs> You're guessing me.
1: I've never, I've never cried this early into a podcast before. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's
2: we we cannot we cannot big you up enough because I, you know, when we when we saw you, he was a he was he was a black man on TV back in the day presenting shows on the strength of his own personality Mm -hmm. you know back in there everyone was everyone was was a comedian like that you had to be literally the funniest
1: person in britain the most engaging person yeah Yeah.
2: and here you were on just on your own personality an elite athlete a black man born in africa at home in the uk media who just happened to be in a wheelchair um and it's yeah it's it's an inspiration to everyone and we're going to get into all that
3: <laughs> I'm so excited! Like, is Addy a Like, I do I think we're being a bit too cool, you know. I actually think we're being a bit too cool. This is
1: Addy, Mate, my twelve-year-old me, sat at home, maybe a little bit younger, watching Exchange. <laughs> it's going crazy <laughs> oh right my now. God. Sorry, sorry if that's me... made you feel any kind of way, Addy. <laughs> You
0: Guys are making me dash man. You're making me like. I'm just like, oh man, this is. So, look, I, I get emotional, you know. I get emotional when I. I because when my, during my career i've i've kind of felt i don't know because there's not been uh, i haven't had a blueprint i haven't had anyone to follow anyone who was like me that yeah. i could follow i've always kind of felt like i was out there on my own and um it's not until i meet other people from the community and just other people in general that i and they say stuff to me that i kind of realise okay I must be doing something. I must have an impact. Mm. You know, Generally, I just kind of think I'm just doing my thing and I don't know whether people like it or not. So, no, it's, it's, it, the last couple of years, has been emotional. Maybe it's because I've just had a kid as well. Mm. When you have children, suddenly everything makes you cry, you know. It's
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Shout out Bolo. Bolo, yes. yeah. Shout out Bolo still. It's up there. No, seriously, this is the second time in my life this has happened to me. And maybe six years ago, I was at the British Courier Awards. And I was w- on the same table as Floella Baroness, Floella Benjamin. And that was the other time I, di- I didn't say anything. She had to ask if I was okay. <laughs> you can imagine the
3: situation I was in. The the last time, genuinely, the last time I felt like this was, I remember being at Westfield, and I was walking in, no, 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 Dom, seriously, like, so what, so I'm walking along, and I'm like, that's for Christie, but about 250 people must have realised it at the same time, and the outpouring of just love that there was, but it was just like, people weren't trying to bother him, they were just like thank you for everything that you've done. We have so much respect and appreciation for you. And also we don't want to kind of interrupt your day, Mm. but you could just, as he walked, you could just see this buzz. And I think it like, bringing it back to you, I just, it's the way you exist and the way that you are featured and the fact that you're so versatile because, you know, Oh, yeah, I'm just going to front a documentary on Africa on the BBC. I'm going to front a next documentary about climate change, and I'm going to at one time be here with wolf pups, another time I'm going to be here at the Elephant Sanctuary. Oh, by the (laughs) way, I'm an elite athlete. Oh, by the way, I'm very serious about climate action. Oh, by the way, I'm going to do the vodcast where I break down stereotypes about... Dating and marriage and love and fatherhood, boss. Being disabled is. Do you know what? It's just, Have you been very, stalking, very me. <laughs> stalking? I watch BBC. <laughs> 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 it's
0: stalking, but yeah. Uh, did you? Did did you? Uh, do you know? Do you know something on on that though? I like it. It wasn't done intentionally, but I think the message that I want to get out to people is: don't allow anyone to put you in the box. Now, when I came into the industry, um, first of all, I had to fight hard to get into the industry, and I was lucky to meet some enablers and people believed in me more than I believed in myself. But what I did find is this industry and this world tries to pigeonhole you. And I'm just like, I know I have so many interests, so many things that I'm passionate about and that I love. And I don't see why just because... I came from a sporting background where I have to be a sporting presenter. You know, I'm interested in people. I'm interested in, in climate change. I'm interested in politics. I'm interested in, you know, every, all all aspects of life. And TV is a wonderful tool to be able to, you know, showcase that. Mm. And, and, and I've, fought for that and i think everyone out there you should do don't allow people to put you in a box or or pigeonhole you man otherwise you only ever you only ever show and 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 exercise a small
3: percentage of who you are Mm. have you turned down projects because you thought that it
0: was putting you in a box yeah yeah definitely um i think in the early years uh i i said yes to a lot of things Um, but also, we, we did say no to a lot of things. And one of the, the things that's really helped is I've got an amazing agent. Now I'm with John Noel Management and, and my agent, John is just incredible guy. When he signed me up back in 2000, uh, I, initially I was, like, I, I was introduced to him by Dermot O'Leary. Um, and someone introduced me to Dermot O'Leary. A, a director introduced me to Dermot O'Leary, who I was working with on a children's show called Tiger Tiger for Channel 5. It was the first show I've ever done. Um, I didn't see TV as a career for me. Um, but I just thought, you know, they, they, I, I was broke and they were offering me a decent amount of money and I was traveling around the world. I got an opportunity to travel around the world. Um, And he said to me, you know, you should take this further. I'm friends with Dermot O'Leary. He's with a great agent. Dermot um, meets me in a pub. He gives me his agent's number. And I threw the number away. I threw it away because I thought, you know what? I I was embarrassed. I thought, if I go to the agency, they're going to laugh when they see me. Mm -hmm. Because I never saw anyone else like me on TV. Luckily, his agent calls me um, a few months later after seeing me on this show on TV um, and at first I didn't believe it was in my foot, it was my mates mucking about. But eventually he convinced me to come in. When I came in, he said to me, look, you know, we want to represent you because we think you're talented. Not because of your disability, not because of your skin colour, but because of the talent that you have. And they said, I know the way this industry works, and I know for you, it's probably going to take longer than it will for some of our other clients. But we're willing to to do a plan for you. We've got a five, 10, 15 year plan and we will get there and we, we will choose the right things for you to to showcase your skills. So I had to like, you know, first of all, that spiel, when someone says that to you, you're like, wow, you know mm, what I mean? That, yeah. that That's amazing. So you have complete trust in them. And so, yeah, I, I put my career in his hands and there were plenty of things in his own robust, ways from manchester i won't do his northern accent but there was plenty of things that he said in his own robust way now nah, you're not doing that you're too you're too bleep, bleep good for that let's move on we'll <laughs> leave that to one side and to have someone who's prepared to say that to you and, and i think the biggest strength that you can have in your life is to be able to say no yeah when you've got that ability and that and you're in that position you know and that confidence to say no that's when you have the power you know and it's time more of us had that power and had that belief in ourselves
2: phenomenal opening i mean we're going to wheel it all the way back to the start of your time in in the spotlight and that started with 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 the basketball now you're in a room here with 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 a couple of guys who probably lied about their basketball ability
1: <laughs> <laughs> so
2: it's it's interesting that that's how you got your big break you you know you're among friends here <laughs> GB
0: was it? Yeah, GB. A, a few, yeah, you know, played um, at a couple of Paralympics. Um, won bronze at the Athens Paralympics. Uh, mm-hmm. Captain GB at World Championships in two thousand and two, I think it was, and mm-hmm. won silver there. Should have beat the US in the final. We had, we had, we had our opportunity. Man I was gutted at that a um, couple of silvers at Europeans and a gold at the Paralympic World Cup and yeah you know basketball has been my life since I was 11 12 years old you know it's it's i, I said it the other day it's kind of like you know i'm i'm the oldest son in my family um and and i think um basketball is has been like my older brother mm-hmm. you know it's been that that that, that person that gives me guidance and, you know, gives me peace and balance when I've needed it, you know, and yeah, all, all the medals are amazing and playing in these tournaments, I've played in incredible games and, you know, done met some incredible people as a result of it. But the truth is I love that sport, man. Mm. You know, I love it so much. Yeah, I was on the court at 6.45. Well, actually I got there early 6.30 a.m. yesterday you know, shooting. You know, doing the, did, working on my um, on my on my my handle and and then working on finishing and you know getting my um consistency on my shot. You know, working on a float shot now. You know, on a mm-hmm. float. You know, all these years, and I haven't had a float, and now I'm like, <laughs> I've got to be able to do something to to neutralize the big guys. But you know, I love that. You know that I every day, and that's the thing about sport in general. You know, every day it gives you opportunity to be better and to be the better person. No, and yeah it's 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 there man it's there it's, I'm connected to it and you guys know you yeah. guys know you've got to feel
3: it what what lessons do you think that um like England basketball can take from like Paralympic basketball because it like I, I was in the English basketball system and it was you know, there was no funding and, but more than that, we just weren't successful. And you guys have that unprecedented and in British basketball, it is unprecedented level of Mm. success. So what, first of all, why was, um, GB Paralympic basketball so good in your opinion? And secondly, what lessons do you think can, can be taken from it?
0: You know, it's, it's, it's a really, really good question. Um, I think first and foremost, the running game, um, in this country has been really neglected there's not been enough good coaches who know how to coach the sport from grassroots level Mm. from 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 a long time and it's not and because of that it's not been a part of our sporting culture and it's really weird when you you see how little basketball is a part of the culture in this country compared to when you go to anywhere else in continental Europe yeah. mm. or mainland Europe I, I played professional basketball in Spain for two years, back in the mid 90s I think it was like 95 to 97 in, in, in Zaragoza and even wheelchair basketball like the fan base that we had, you know the, 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 the feeling of, of passion for, for basketball in Spain was enormous. It's like the second biggest sport. Mm. And then you go to France, it's the same. You go to Germany, you go to Italy, you go to Greece, you go to Lithuania, you go to all of these countries in Europe. And it's massive, except for over here in the UK. But uh, it, sort of on the flip side to that, Wheelchair basketball has always been big in this country. You know, since the 60s and in Paralympic sport, it's always been one of the marquee sports. And and because of that, our history goes back for way longer. So we've been, we, I mean, yes, we had success during my period and just a little bit between the period before, and we laid the foundations for the generation after. But we probably had about 30 years where we were getting our butt kicked by everyone around <laughs> Europe and around the world, but it was just it, it, our time came. You know, our time came, and we've been there long enough. And England uh, basketball in the running game, they have to just invest in it. They have to get out to schools. They have to show kids that there is an alternative to football, rugby, and cricket, and 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 they have to use the people from the sport who who have that passion. Mm They even bring some of us from wheelchair basketball in, you know, to get more people. It's all about generating numbers, generating numbers and creating a culture, creating a community and creating a tribe. I felt wheelchair basketball, we've always had this tribe and we've always had this feeling like we don't care if the rest of the country doesn't respect our sport and doesn't know about our sport we're going to do it and we're going to do it to the best of our abilities and at some point we're going to shine, you know, and you guys have got to have that kind of almost like arrogance and that type of attitude, man, and swagger and belief in the sport.
2: Uh, Yeah, I feel like it's basketball in this country that use... Numbers games to lie to themselves, so they'll tell themselves, Well, there's X, there's more courts than there've ever been, or more people playing than ever. When, when in reality, you look, you go, should go down to where these basketball courts are, and they are football cages. Mm-hmm. And what's going to happen if you've got a basketball hoop with a football goal underneath it? Yeah. Y- you're not getting a shot up there until you get, few, unless you get down there at 10, 12 o'clock at night, because people well, playing football.
0: The, the truth is, we need. We, we don't need, like, administrators or managers or politicians leading our sport. We need people from the sport. We need people from the community who care about the sport. And that's the problem. I mean, we're getting it in, our, in, in wheelchair basketball now. You know, once there's money in the sport, you suddenly start getting people who have no real connection or affinity with the sport. They're just there, and it's like a stepping stone to move on to something else. And that's not what we need, man. We need people who love the game.
2: Mm. Uh, it's, it's interesting. I'm involved with um, wheelchair rugby just through mm-hmm. my through my my usual job, and they got in, they won the World Cup final. They, it was a really close, tight game. Everyone loved it. BBC Two, mm. and I, it's it's interesting just to hear you say that now because I, I, there are conversations about when's the next thing that's going to happen in wheelchair rugby when can we put the next event on and you see where they're, they're talking about the growth of the game and the question is are you talking about the growth of the game or the growth of the spectacle yeah. so we can keep putting these things on every two, three years, four years and as you say, got all your administrators, I can do this and I can move on to the Olympic Committee and I can move on to world athletics and it's it's you know it's a nice little payday.
0: Guys, guys, let me let you into a little secret. We're living in a capitalist world, which is everything is about making money. What do you mean? Everything is about, <laughs> money. Everything is about making money. I, 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 I and it, you know, people are selling their soul for for this, and it's um, it's a shame. Look, I understand. We all gotta pay the bills, man. You know, when you're in the ocean, if you can't swim, you're gonna drown. So we we we, we 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 have to we have to paddle, but sometimes we're taking it to such extremes, such extremes, unnecessary extremes, where the the, the the actual game, the actual humanity, the community, all of that side of things, the side of things where people look at it and say, oh, you're just like this uh, this guy that's uh, got this hippie mindset that's up in there. It's all getting lost. It's mm-hmm. all getting lost. No, and, and until we get back to that... Yeah, you know, things are always going to be so short term and short lived. That that they'll, they'll, wheelchair rugby will be fine now, mm. but then the moment they struggle, they'll move on to the next thing. Yeah, and that's the sad thing about it. Man. Yeah,
2: it's it is, and it's it's really frustrating because you see, or you used to see kids playing like football, and they're just playing up against the wall, and it's fine. You go to America, and the whole pickup basketball culture, it's like it's just the purity of it there'll be a 50 year old a 6 year old 7 year old man and then there'll be like teenagers playing just queuing up to play right uh, he's at uh, that team's off this team's on there's just a it's just it's simple we just like playing we just like mm-hmm. playing this game and it's you see it less and less here and it it shouldn't be that way
0: yeah it's funny because you wouldn't expect it in america because there's a society where money means so much mm. but um, yet there is still, I, I think they've managed to to find a way to have that grassroots side of of sport where it's a part of the community where it bonds people together. Um, that they, they, they're able to marry the two. They, they'll have that part, but then they've also got the shop window of the NBA or the NFL, you know, and all of that. So you know, we've got to find that. We've got to find and 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 in a cynical way they need they know they need the grassroots side they know they need the pick up basketball courts and the people to come from the streets because that's what feeds the nba you know that's what feeds their audience so for them it's okay to have that romantic side of the sport we've not got we're not we have not got to that level of cynicism yet, you know. What I mean, yeah. where where we look, where we can look at it in that way, and know actually we need the community in the grassroots side. We're just kind of almost like, you know, we'll 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 we'll, we'll get on one thing, and whatever's hot, you know, we'll deal with it. You know, it's wheelchair rugby today, tomorrow it'll be uh, Paralympic swimming the next day it'll be I don't know uh, winning football um, and then we'll just keep moving on until we can uh, we'll exploit each thing but you know it, it. it's about the longevity and it's about what does it do to a country how can we bring the country together how can we have community how can we use sport as a proper tool um, to make our nation great mm-hmm.
2: you mentioned you travel a lot playing wheelchair basketball you're in Spain how how much do you think that sort of opened up your sort of mind to new experiences? And obviously it's it's so it must have sowed a seed because the rest of your career now with with, with the T V and the presenting, you've gone on to just live that lifestyle but just in you know, in, in sort of through the media as opposed to through basketball.
0: Another good question there. Um moving moving to Spain I think was really the foundation of my career. It was incredible for me and the reason why is because you know prior to moving to Spain I left I left home when I was about 17 you know just turning 18 I think I was still 17 um, not told my parents um, you know because I'd had me and my dad and My mum as well, we were having a little dispute. You know, they wanted me to go to university. They saw education as the route, you know, as our families tend to do. And the two right as well, you know. um, You know, they've made massive sacrifices. And, um, you know, they, they, they did that to give me the opportunity to be successful. And they saw it as via education. But I told my parents when I was about 15 or 16 that I was going to be a Paralympian um i was going to be actually i said i was going to be a wheelchair basketball player and i said i was going to be a star and i was going to make it um and they thought i was mad you know and like sometimes when i look back at that period i think you know actually i must have been crazy as well because there was no real um yeah nobody talked about wheelchair basketball or the paralympics there and there was no route to uh, having a long-term career or making any money um and so I realised that the only way I was going to be successful was to leave home. Um, I wrote a letter. A friend of mine said to me, "You know, this is the only way you're going to be able to do it." And he, he, uh, so he, he said to me, "Write a letter to the council saying that your dad's kicking you out, um, forge his signature, um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and um, you know, tell them that you're disabled and you'll get put on the on the on the housing list." And it took about six or seven months, but um, I got a, I got a flat. And then I just moved out. Um, and I moved out and I was living in Stratford, not far from West Ham Park. I was going over to West Ham Park, sweeping the glass off the park and playing basketball there, you know, working out, training with my club team. And I went to a tournament in Spain, um, did really well, got voted MVP in that tournament uh, and came back. Um, and in the meantime, you know, I was, I could see the way things were going. There was a lot of people around me in my community who were—I'm trying to think of the right word—they were doing negative things. Yeah. You know, things were yeah. w- which I knew if I stayed around would lead me up the wrong path mm. you know, i basically end up going to prison and you know just end up on the wrong side of the law yeah. um and i started to feel really i was starting to feel suffocated and claustrophobic in east london especially in stratford you know a lot of people weren't having the the ambition that i i i, I wanted and i suddenly got um an opportunity to uh, go to uh University of Illinois. They offered me a semi pro a semi scholarship to play basketball out there mm. and I then got a, a contract offer from a Spanish basketball team to play basketball out there. Um and I couldn't afford to go to Illinois because it was only a semi-scholarship and I had to find $19,000, which I just didn't have. <laughs> but in Spain, they were going, you know what I mean? Yeah. Who, who has 19 grand? You know what I mean? <laughs> and, and I, I was like 17, 18 then. So I was like, nah, that's that—that's not the one for me. Um, so, uh, I, I took the offer to go to Spain and it was massive because I never really left East London. Um, I could barely speak English. I mean, I spoke Cockney. I was like proper street. Oi, oi. <laughs> I mean, and then I was going to a different country where I couldn't speak the language. I didn't know anybody. And I remember being there and the first four months were so hard. Like, like you know, the food was different. The TV was different. I couldn't understand my teammates. There was one guy that could speak English, could just about understand the coach. Um, and, I, and you know, I was like struggling. It wasn't until about Christmas that I suddenly, you know, started to really enjoy myself. But it taught me so much. I, I started to learn another language. They moved me into a student accommodation. So I was living with all of these students, international students, Um, who were like from doing Erasmus courses and students from Spain. So they were teaching me languages. I was playing, um, uh, playing basketball. I was seen as a celebrity because I was um, playing for, for, for the local team. And I was in the papers every weekend. Um, and, and I, I had to grow up because I was 19, um, about to turn 20 and I was the, one of the few professional players in the team, um, I was the lead player. I was the one who everyone looked to um, whenever there was any big situations. I had to do the scoring. I had to be the defender, Martin, lead all the team, help with the coaching, and I learned so much. I went from a boy to a man in mm. that period of time. You know, what I mean, a boy to a man. I just I came back when I was about twenty three, and I was a completely different person. You know, I was so much more experience, so much more mature, so much more worldly, yeah. you know, I suddenly realised there was a bigger world than than Stratford or Plasto. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> those opportunities it's only really through, I feel it's only really through sport that you find young black men, get those opportunities um, and we're going to go on to the sort of broadcasting um, mm. sort of perspective and I feel like you weren't necessarily lucky, but you managed to sort of almost immediately shake off those, any perception things by the type of broadcasting that you went into straight away. Yeah. You you didn't get pushed down that sporting sort of path, did you, with with Tiger yeah. Tiger?
0: It, you're definitely right in terms of, you know, my introduction into, into TV and into the broadcasting world was, um, you know, contrary to what anyone would have thought, was through uh, travel docs, through wildlife. And my first big thing was a wildlife documentary on on Channel 5. But where I would disagree with you um, just a little bit is, and this isn't um, any criticism to you, but the truth is I was lucky. I was super, super lucky. Yes, I had talent. Yes, I worked really hard, but unfortunately, in this world we live in, which is so um, uneven in terms of where we all start at, Mm. you need luck. And my luck came in the fact that I met some incredible enablers, Mm. you know, and just by total coincidence, you know, I met people who worked in the industry, who were making a documentary and they wanted to... Interview, um, a wheelchair basketball player, um, and a friend of mine who was working for Kensington Council knew about me and he pointed them in my direction and they came to me. That's a, that's a one in a million chance they could have found anyone in the country. Um, and, and, and then the fact that they met me and they got me, you know, because I didn't speak like any other broadcaster. I was proper street, man. I was like, yeah. you know what I mean? I, I was like raw from, from, from the street. And I didn't know anything about how Teddy was made. I just was me in, on camera. And they liked it. And they said that TV needed someone like me. Like, you don't meet people like that every day. Mm. And, and it's really sad, right, that, Unfortunately, in this world, if you're black, if you're from any ethnic minority, if you have a disability, you know, if you're not basically uh, a white middle class man, you need luck. Luck is the most important metric that you need in order to succeed. And, and, And you may disagree with me, but I look at it in the fact that if it was hard work, if it was hard work alone, my parents would have been billionaires
1: yeah you know what I
0: mean yeah because no one worked harder than our parents mm. no one worked harder than our parents the the the, the amount of hours the amount of jobs they did you know and unfortunately hard work and uh, and talent alone are not enough which is upsetting for me but my job and your job is to make it so that it's only hard work and it's not about the way you look and and you don't need that luck you know but that's that's what I got. I got people who were who were in there, and fortunately for me, you know, they they got me onto this show, Tiger Tiger. And the reason why they wanted to use me is because they said, you know, you can speak to a generation of people um, who TV isn't connecting with, and we want them to connect with the world. There are endangered animals out there, like the tiger, um, like the the, the elephant. Um, like the cassowary bird in Australia, all these incredible, wonderful species, right? And the only way that we're going to get kids like you of your generation, and I was a child back then, to engage with these is to have someone like you on there. You know, you don't get in the nineties. You don't get people with that kind of foresight, you know, to 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 put some, and and that kind of bravery to put someone like me on there, and. They introduced me to it, and I'd never done anything on wildlife. Yeah, I liked animals; I thought they were cute and stuff. But I wasn't a wildlife presenter, and doing that job, going out to India, trekking tigers on elephant back, living in the jungle in 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 South South Africa, traveling, scuba diving on the barrier reef, and 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 meeting and hanging out with wolves and bears in Romania, I fell in love with travel and with wildlife. It just opened my eyes, and from that moment, I was like, not really that interested in becoming a sports presenter. Yeah. I was like, mm. this is sick. I get to travel around the world, <laughs> meet interesting people, and see these incredible animals, man.
1: And you don't need to be hurting all the time as well.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, jeez, jeez, you know what I mean? Sport, and and, and also, I, I one thing I would say that I had, and and, and I'll give myself props for is that I realized and I knew that there's only so long that I would have in a sporting career in basketball. And it was only so much money that I mm. could make, um, playing, playing wheelchair basketball. And, you know, my, my dad was, was ill. I've got an older sister who's got, um, uh, disability, she's got down syndrome. You know, my, my family didn't come from, um, from money, you know, and, I was needed to be the breadwinner. I needed to take care of my family. And suddenly I was being given this golden ticket, this opportunity into a career um, that could just take me anywhere. And I was like, you know what? I need to smash this. Mm. I need to properly smash this. And I and I started to really try and understand how the industry works and understand what I could bring to the industry, what I had that other people didn't have, and to exploit that and use that. And that's the one place that I think I would give myself props is that I had that awareness. And I think that awareness came through desperation because <laughs> I knew, you know, this may be the only chance I would get to fly.
1: So you said you talk about that desperation, giving you that. How long do you think it took you within your broadcasting career to have that confidence to be like, I'm gonna blaze my own trail. I'm not just gonna allow my career to be shaped by what my agent brings me, what other people bring me. I'm gonna do what I wanna do.
0: I think in terms of, of my agent, we were we were in, on the same on the same um, page actually, which was which was good. But what was harder um for instance was there were, there were times I, I started doing a travel show um the BBC or BBC holiday program was called mm-hmm. back then um and and also another show called dream ticket and a lot I I didn't know this is how TV works I was kind of naive because I didn't know much about TV but when you'd go out um you'd have a director and producer and they'd write scripts and they'd write pieces to camera for you and I would look at these pieces to camera and I'd be like, there's no way I'm going to say any of this. <laughs> this isn't my language. Yeah. This isn't how I would talk about that. And I would switch and change it. And like these guys, know it's not their fault because they've not been around me. You know, they've gone to Oxbridge or Cambridge or, you know, some middle-class institution. Mm. Um, and, and so they felt things had to be spoken proper in a certain way. Yeah. I'm like, that's not true to me. And I literally was from day dot fighting to get my voice, you know, and I remember having many arguments with directors, (laughs) you know, out there. And a part of me thinking, am I messing this up? You know, am I being ungrateful? Maybe I should just toe the line because I've got this wonderful opportunity. But then also another part of me saying, I can't say that. I can't say that. I can't say that. And I can't say that and go back to East London and look my friends in the eye after I've spoken in a certain way, which is not me. It's not real. You know, so <laughs> I, just, I just fought from from day one. And I think that comes from my parents and from having a disability where, you know, you've I've always had to prove myself um, straight away. And I've always had to, you know, get my voice out there because I know if it isn't, if I don't, if I'm not assertive straight away, People are just going to swallow you up.
3: So, Adi, I, I wanted to ask you because you talked about falling in love with traveling and you've obviously on um like the Climate Action Board. How do you square your job with the fact that to do your job, you kind of have to do a lot of, you know, air travel, which, you know, that
0: your CO2 emissions and things like that? It's a brilliant question. It is a brilliant question. And, you know, you. Uh, a lot of our our lives are about contradictions and are about a certain amount of cognitive dissonance you know in terms of you know there's so many people if you ask them you know would you like to w- w- would you like to have clean air or, or or a nicer future for your kids and they'll be they'll put their hands up but then you say to them, would you like? What, are you going to give up your your petrol car? And they'll be like, "No way! Yeah. <laughs> no way! Are you going to give up eating meat? No way!" So yeah, we, <laughs> there, there there was that, and um, and and I had a lot of guilt. And I mean, it was it's only sort of like the t- last 10, 15 years that I've really started to understand about the science and about climate um, change. And and what I've realised is yes me traveling around the world is it, it, it is, is not helpful um but my footprint is 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 tiny it's it the the, the real big um uh, emitters are those big corporations those big mm. companies those big billionaires they're the ones who have a massive massive footprint but even still i can't take it for granted and be and just be blase about my my footprint so what i want to try and do is make sure that when i do travel you know one it it, it, it's something that's necessary and two that i use it to do something greater you know i use it to inform people to give people knowledge you know that they wouldn't have had that climate change series was hard to make I put my body out there, climbing up mountains and, and going through freezing places and, you know, just... You know, and we did it during lockdown, you know, spending yeah, eight days on my own in, in quarantine in a hotel. You know, it was yeah, it was really, really hard, but I felt it was important because there's a message that needs to be get, get given out there. And so that's how I kind of uh, square it, but I also try to make my footprint um whilst i'm at home as small as possible i've been driving an electric car since 2016 even though i've got an electric car i use public transport way more yeah. anyway you know my car i've done i've had it since 2016 and i've done 40,000 miles on it you know so <laughs> not hardly done anything <laughs> in, in the car i eat way less meat i i, I don't eat any red meat if it, uh, at all i um, I'm pretty much vegetarian um, these days as well. Um, I try to buy all my clothes from um, um, companies that uh, recycle the clothes and recycle cotton. I try to do, um, do my due diligence and look on the information for where I get my, my goods from um, and I buy less clothes. Mm. You know, I and I've become a, a far smaller consumer. You know, I've looked at my life thinking I, I used to buy so much <laughs> unnecessary yeah. stuff man mm. you know what i mean i got caught up in this whole thing of you have to have this you have to have that And um, so yeah i've i've just i do all of those things to try and make my footprint small but also i think i'm in a pre- position where i've got a platform and a profile to, to to give people knowledge and help people understand what what can be done
3: yeah i mean one of the greatest marketing tricks of the last hundred years is corporations switching the idea of um, recycling and saving the earth away from them and onto the individuals <laughs> as if as if yeah. kind of me washing out my yogurt pots is the same as them running like empty flights you
0: know <laughs> no, it, it's 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 nuts it's nuts it's kind of um that uh what what, what do they call it the um oh my god uh, uh, making you feel like you're the bad guy. Um, Gaslighting. You know, I mean, uh, do, do, do you know what I mean? And well, they, they, their footprints are are huge. But that's why we need the knowledge. Mm, you know, the yeah. truth is, we, we, we're we're in this world now where we've got so much. We've got access to so much information. Sometimes too much information. Um, but 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 people, uh, the people in power. You know, the the, the uh, our, our leaders are not making that um, information digestible and they're not giving us the right information because it I, I feel like for them it's it's easier for them to control us if we have less information mm. and we have less understanding and we have to we, we we have to stop being lazy you know we have to start understanding learning more about our planet how can we not know how our planet works it's only in the, and and I I put my hand up it's only in the last 15 20 years that I've been understanding the impact of, of the Arctic and how important the Antarctic is and, 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 and sea level rises and how interconnected we are as a planet. You know, the fact, like, we've just had our, our government, um, talk about this new trade deal that they're doing with the, the, the Pacific nations. And I think Vietnam is included in it and all of that. And uh, the, the, the real, contradiction and and cognitive dissonance in that is, you know, Vietnam is one of these countries that is in part of this trade deal. We're talking about how this is much better. One, we're going to be importing stuff from way further, which is going to increase our carbon footprint. But two, Vietnam is a country that is under immense strain from climate change. It's the third biggest producer of rice. um, And it could be underwater, in the next 15 or 20 years, right, if we do not change what we're doing in this country. So we're hailing this big trade deal with a country that we are literally destroying because of our emissions in this country. How on earth does that even make sense? These are supposed to be the most intelligent people in our country, and they're coming up with this madness. (laughs) It's mad. It's mad. If Vietnam goes underwater... You lose the third biggest rice producer in the world. What does that do for food production in the world? It's hugely damaging. Mm. You know, we're not even thinking about that. And we produce some sort of climate policy about carbon sequestration, which is just not enough. Oh man, dude. Don't even get me started, man. I'm, I'm, gonna,
2: I'm getting vexed as I'm thinking about it. That is the chair of the of the Climate Change Commission, <laughs> Climate Change Action Group, coming out, jumping out. I'm I'm just gonna. I mean, we've not got much time left with you. I'm keen to just get just hear some stories. The volcano. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Talk to us about the volcano.
0: Wow! God, that volcano seminal moment in my career i guess (laughs) Uh, so uh, you're talking about beyond boundaries documentary that i made back in 2005 yeah um funny thing about that is uh 2004 athens paralympics um go, go on and win my um paralympic medal um and I was feeling really sort of jaded by basketball. I was starting to really struggle with it. And, and I was almost falling out of love um, with wheelchair basketball. And, I, and in my mind, in the back of my mind, I could see re- retirement looming in, in, in 2004, straight after um, the Athens Paralympics. Because you take time out after the Paralympics. And I was, after about two, three months, I was struggling to even want to go back. I just didn't want to get back on the court and didn't want to start training again. Um, and then this opportunity came along. I, you know, my agent gets contacted and said, you know, BBC are thinking of doing this documentary where we want to take a group of disabled people, 12, 11, 12 of them, um, to Central America and we want you to trek across America um, on, on in your wheelchairs on four, um, and you, you're going to get your own um, water. You're going to get your own food, build your own tent. You're going to be going through rainforest, and I was like, "That's a bit of me," you know. <laughs> I mean, I was like, that's that's. I mean, adventure, travel. Wow, you know, so far away from uh, all the pressure and madness of, of of sport that I was in at the time, and you know, I was like, "Yeah, let's do this." And 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 so we we uh, it was a few months on you know i got they, they contact me in december and um we then go in at the beginning of february um and go out with a group of us there about 12 of us uh two of us in wheelchairs a couple of amputees a guy who's completely blind a guy who's completely deaf as well um arm amputee um and yeah we're we, we, i remember we we started off on the West, uh, the Caribbean coast of Nicaragua, Nicaragua, um, and uh, just being this beautiful tropical sort of place. And then we 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 set off on this trek, and we're supposed to do something like um, I know five ten kilometers a day. And after the first, um, you know, I think it was twelve hours, we'd only managed to do like I know uh, two kilometers. Mm-hmm. and our producer and the director i could see were like absolutely crapping themselves they were thinking how uh, this uh, we've messed this up the, we've convinced the bbc to spend millions on this or whatever it is they were spending and 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 these guys are not going to do it um but we get through that and we start making progress but people start dropping out um you know for various reasons uh, along the course, and it was really, really hard, uh, but incredible. You know, there were times, I remember a time when we're going through the jungle and there were, um, these howler monkeys who were, uh, these howler monkeys that were jumping around in the trees, you know, just like throwing their, their, their crap at us. And, <laughs> and, and, and then just like howling at night and seeing snakes and all sorts of wildlife as you're like getting into your, into your tent, you know. Plucking mangoes, fresh mangoes from trees and eating mangoes, mm. and meeting tribes who'd not even seen a westerner or a white face um in in their lives, and suddenly they see like a group of disabled people just descend upon them. They're like, What the hell? <laughs> with no arms and women with no legs and blind people trekking through the jungle. They must have thought we were mad. <laughs> you know, it was bonkers. But all the way. Everyone was having this sort of amazing moment where they were hitting a wall and and the journey was getting really tough for them and they were struggling and they were going through this magical moment. But I was finding it quite easy, you know, because of my sporting background. I was strong, physically fit, really good in my chair. And then we came to the volcano. And I remember when we arrived at the volcano, like this is uh, Ometepe. This volcano, I think, is called in. Um, it, I, I, I forget whether where the place is it, it, it is called in um, in Nicaragua. But anyway, I, I know it's called Mount Ometepe, and it's a live volcano. And if I don't know, have you guys ever seen a volcano before in your life? Not a live one, but I've seen a volcano. Yeah. <laughs> so, and well, this volcano, we're literally we're trekking through the rainforest. Um, And it's nothing but trees and and forests in front of you. And then suddenly you come out into this open and you see this lake. And then the whole skyline is volcano. You can't see nothing but Mm. volcano. (laughs) And at the top, the top looks like this tiny, tiny, tiny thing with like white ice and snow around it and like sort of a little bit of smoke billowing out the top. And they say you guys have got to get up there. <laughs> I went, oh, why you, you know what I mean? It was, like, oh, was why? And, and I thought, okay, this is going to be mad. And so the first part of the journey up the volcano, we did on horseback and we went to what they call the shoulder of the volcano. And it's this, it was this flat part of the volcano, which was about, a thousand feet up um uh maybe more maybe two thousand feet i think it was two thousand feet up and it's it was about it was this flat part which is about 200 meters um long and maybe 60 or 70 meters wide and then on 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 either side on the width is just this drop that's two thousand feet and if you <laughs> fell down that, you're not stopping on either side and they said we're going to go the rest of the way, which was another 4,000 feet, and we're going to start in the morning. And we had to start at, say, like 5 a.m. in the morning because they said we we needed to get to the top by 2 p.m. Um, Two because if we didn't get to the top by 2 p.m., there wouldn't be enough daylight for us to come yeah. back down safely. <sighs> so I've got these guys. I've got uh, uh, Ammar, who's blind, um, pushing me. I've got Toby, who's got one arm pulling me in the wheelchair i've got carl who's got one leg uh pushing me and we're pushing up the and and i'm pushing the chair as well myself myself and we're pushing up the side of this volcano you know and it's like really tough sort of cloud forest tufty land and, and the wheels are just not moving and we're really struggling and after about i think it was about two hours we'd only done something like 20 meters um and like the, 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 the group leader, um, was an ex SAS guy, Ken Haynes. He comes, he, he, he comes to us. You know, we, the other guys had stopped and he, and he, and he comes up and he comes to us and he says, Look, you're going to have to make a decision here. He said, at this rate, you're not going to make it to, to the top at 2 p.m. And he said, I, as the leader, can't say, allow you guys to, to get up there later than 2 p.m. So either, Everyone goes back to base, um, and uh, and we don't do this. Or Addy goes back to base, and you, the rest of you guys go up on your own. And like before you finish, because I knew he was going to say it, I was like, "Nah, you know, all my life I've had people try to tell me what I can and can't do. I've had people try and 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 judge me. And you know, one thing I've always tried to do is try and do things on my own terms. And I was like this is something that I've never wanted to do on TV and I hate to do, but I'm going to get out of my chair. So I got out of my wheelchair and I just started crawling up the side of the, the, the the volcano. Um, and it was so hard because one emotionally, it brought back memories from when I was at school. Um, and the kids used to call me names. They used to call me a black monkey and, you know, and they used to call me peg leg. Um, and, and I, I used to really struggle, um, with that because I, when I went to school, I never used the wheelchair. I used calipers and there were times where I wasn't, I'd be knackered and I'd collapse on the floor and the kids would laugh at me. Um, and when I got a wheelchair when I was about 12 or 13, it gave me strength and it made me feel like I was, you know, as good as my friends, if not better, because I could move about so easily. And so to get out of the wheelchair, I was basically saying goodbye to what I saw as my strength, to what I saw as my shield. And not only was I saying goodbye to it, I was saying goodbye to it on camera. And I knew that there was going to be hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people watching me. Mm. And as I started climbing up the volcano, I knew that by now how TV works. I could hear them on the walkie talkie. There's like, he's out of his chair, he's out of his chair. Bring a camera, bring a camera. And the camera was straight on my face. And I just burst into tears and I told them, I swore at the camera. I told them to go away and all of that. Um, and, and, but I just carried on and Carl, um, who's a good friend of mine to this day, amputee, just an amazing, amazing guy, Carl Sachs. He stayed by my side and I dragged myself. 4,000 feet up this volcano and on my backside the volcano was boiling hot, it was burning my hands, burning my backside I could smell the sulphur coming out um, and it took I think it was like 4 hours so I dragged myself up this volcano I was so physically exhausted but I knew if I didn't do it, I would never forgive myself, I knew I'd never be able to live with myself to know that I I could have tried and I could have done something you know but because I was too embarrassed to get out of my wheelchair I didn't do it so yeah I did it and it was one of the most empowering things I've ever done you know I think when you make yourself open and you allow your weaknesses to be shown and you bear everything sometimes for all of us you know that vulnerability is really scary and it and 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 it can maybe even like hurt people or harm people. But because of the support I got and the love I got from the rest of the team and also surprisingly the response I got from the British public, I think it was just an empowering moment. It changed my perception of me and it made me no longer care about how people looked at my body because I was ashamed of the way my body looked, the way my legs looked. You know, I was happy with my upper half. I got big strong arms and all of that stuff. But I was always worried about the way my legs looked and all of that. And that moment, you know, changed it all. So yeah, that volcano. Damn. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Thanks so much. Ad- Adi Adepatan, M B E. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so thank much, Andy. you
0: Guys, thank you. Sorry if I've like got no, you know what I mean? Not, not,
1: not at all. Been
0: transfixed here. Yeah.
2: <laughs> thank you so much. Um, now, have a blessed
0: week. Love to you and yours. Yeah, man. Thank you. Thank you. And good luck with everything you're doing. You know, it's an absolute pleasure. And I'm just like, you know, so proud of you guys, man. So thank you. Thank
2: Thanks. you. Thank you thank so you. much. Cheers. Boys, that is a bit of a dream of mine. Yeah, but I'm not going to. I'm gaslighting. right now <laughs> <laughs> I do, <man>. I'm, ga- <laughs> I'm getting emotional.
1: Addy, <laughs> oh, Jesus, yeah. man. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. No shade to the rest of the guests that the guests the the guests that we've had. <laughs> I'm gonna say that again. No shade to the rest of the guests that we've had. That, um, but that, yeah, it's different. When you got someone that you've seen on the screen since you were a kid, yeah, I think that's when it it, it really, really does make a big difference. So big up, Addy. Honestly, in just
2: in uh, just in, inspirational to to this day and forevermore. And you know, that's that's why we have these conversations. And mm. he's never been, he's never been, I've never seen him be patronized. Was, and
3: that's something that I, I, I we didn't have time to, to, to kind of speak to him about it, but, you know, he doesn't, it would be easy to look at somebody like Addy and go, oh, that'll tick some boxes. But actually, it, when he presents something, it's not like he's presenting because he's disabled or he's presenting because he's He's presenting because he's phenomenal. Yeah, oh, he's he does. very, very, I was very good at
2: yeah. it. He alluded to it there, like he's, he's been out, like on on his own territory, on his own islands, just on the on the strength of who he is, mm. and it's it, like yeah, he he's not the one that they, they call in just to get a quick soundbite because then they're, they're not gonna get it from him. Mm. That's not what he's about. you
1: know what I, I was thinking as well as he was talking? and I didn't want to interject, but we I think it was when we were speaking with Musa, we spoke about the likes of Rio Ferdinand and how they have been able to kind of push and develop this authentic. Black voice in shows and on, on on certain publications that you wouldn't have seen it previously. Obviously, Ian Wright's a huge proponent of that as well. And he's one of the first that I can really think of being that person. Mm-hmm. If I go back to the 90s and the early noughts when we were seeing him on TV, he was one of the first to do it. And it was just as he was speaking, I was like, yeah, you really did pave the way for so many things that I'd not thought about until now mm-hmm. we get to this kind of arena to discuss it. So
3: it was him and John Fashnie. Yeah. It really was him and John Fashnie. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm. Ga- I can't even lie. Like, I need to kind of just sit down with like a cold glass of water and just yeah. reflect because.
2: Yeah. Look at us. Mm. <laughs> and because it <laughs> Who makes <expected> this. <laughs> because it makes me feel so good. We're gonna give you more. We're gonna give you more. <laughs> Jello, Dom. Peace. People, we out.